Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. There's always something deeply satisfying about finding a simple solution to a difficult dilemma. A favorite example is told of the story of a traveler in a deserted place who came to a fork in the road but had no idea which way to turn. He had been told in advance that there were two men who lived in the region, one of whom always told the truth and the other of whom was a pathological liar. It so happened that one of these men were waiting at the intersection and offered to give him directions. The trouble was, the man did not know which of the two men it was. Was it the liar, or was it the truth teller? So how could he know that he was getting the right directions? What one question could he ask to tell him exactly which way to go? This difficult solution or dilemma has a simple solution. As a tr- all the traveler needed to do was ask the following question. If I were to ask the other man for directions, which way would he tell me to go? Then once the man answered, the traveler would know that he should take the other road. If he was talking to the liar, the man would be sure to lead him astray. On the other hand, if he was talking to the man who always told the truth, he was sure to get the truth about the other man's lie. Either way, there would be a lie in the direction somewhere, so the traveler would know that he should go the opposite way. This morning, we're going to see a story from the Bible that gives a simple solution to an even more difficult dilemma. Look at verse 10 with me. Now it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the lives of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I suggest that verse 10 holds out to us the goal of praying, and that is to please the Lord. In fact, should this not be the intent of all of our worship, public or private? Sadly, the church today has gone amok forgetting this very principle. We debate styles of worship. We hear how worship must cater to our felt needs. But the goal of worship is to give pleasure to God, the only true audience of one. And saying how pleased he was with Solomon, God said he was just as pleased with the king about what he didn't request as what he did request. In asking for wisdom, Solomon was refusing to ask any of the things that most people want out of this life. Most people hold on to this life so tightly that they would give almost anything to keep from the day from coming that they would have to die. But Solomon did not ask God for a long life. Most people wish that they had more money and have already made some plans for it, what they would do with it, if they could get their hands on it. But Solomon did not ask God for riches. Most people wish they could get even with some people who have done them wrong. 
but Solomon did not ask for revenge against his enemies. Instead, Solomon rightly regarded those earthly goods as inferior to the supreme gift of spiritual wisdom. He would later write in Proverbs that wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. Solomon had asked for a hearing heart, not that he would feel good. It was not like the modern pursuit of spirituality, which is a quest often focused on self. Solomon's request was for the good of the Lord's people, people in whom God had made him the king. Solomon acknowledged the sovereign rule of God over his own life and the life of the nation. In other words, Solomon knew that he was second in command. It was only when he forgot that truth that he began to get himself into all kinds of trouble. God's promise to Solomon was that he would receive what he has asked for in discernment and administrating justice and a wise and discerning heart. Now, true wisdom is not about intellectual genius so much as it is about the ability to live in accordance with life as God has ordained it. It is a term that will be used to describe Solomon more than 20 times in the following chapter. Verse 13, please. I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings, and held a feast for all of his servants. We are told here that God graciously gives Solomon even more than what he had asked for. With some regularity, people portrayed the God of the Old Testament as a mean, bloodthirsty, sadistic tyrant who gets off on steamrolling sinners with plagues and other nastiness. And even if they don't go to that extreme, they will still depict him as a God of wrath who is then juxtaposed with the God of love in the New Testament. This is theological hogwash, of course and a false contrast that is utterly untrue to the witness of both the Old and the New Testaments. But that doesn't stop people from thinking that way. But we see here that the God of the Old Testament graciously gives Solomon even more than what he had asked for. Later, Jesus would say that if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall the Father in heaven Give, those, give what is good to those who ask him. God will always give his best to those who leave the choice with him. But then the Lord is going to extend a conditional promise. If you walk in my ways, then I will prolong your life. Now the earlier promises had been unconditional, but this promise was conditioned on obedience which sadly Solomon is going to fail at. We then read that Solomon awoke from his dream and immediately sacrificed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Now that was wise, as whenever we receive a gift, we should always thank the giver. And since every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights above, we live most wisely 
when our lives are filled with thankful worship to God. Now, before we come to the situation faced by Solomon, it is instructed to look basic, basically at the opening lines of Psalm 72, which Solomon himself wrote, which reads, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and the poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Solomon's prayer is also a cry for justice in the everlasting kingdom of God. And like all the other royal psalms, Psalm 72 looks forward to the coming of Christ as the true king. Jesus is the king of all righteousness and the judge of all justice who defends the cause of the poor, delivers the children of the needy, and crushes the oppressor. Jesus made this clear from the very beginning of his ministry. When he preached his first sermon at Nazareth, he announced that he had come to proclaim good news to the poor and to set at liberty all those who had been oppressed. Jesus has promised justice, and we long for his justice to be done. This is a fallen world where we see so much injustice that we sometimes wonder if, if everything will ever be made right. Wrongs go unpunished, including the wrongs done to little children. People get away seemingly with dark deeds done in the night. It's hard to know what the truth is. One person says one thing, the other person says something else. But who is telling the truth? The greatness of Solomon lies not only in the big headline-grabbing issues of his day that he dealt with, but also with his dealings with the cause of the poor and the children of the needy. David prayed that Solomon would be a king whose goodness would touch everything. One commentator writes, God's chosen leaders can't always remain on the heights of spiritual glory, but must take that glory and blessing with them into the place of duty and service. Jesus left the Mount of Transfiguration for the Valley of Conflict, and Paul left the heights of heaven to carry on earth the pain of a thorn in the flesh. Psalm had been worshiping at Gibeon in Jerusalem, but now he has returned to the responsibilities of the throne. This story is one of the best known in the entire Bible. Having been promised wisdom, Solomon is now going to have that wisdom severely tested. Verse 16, please. Then two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. Like his father David, Solomon gave the common people access to the king. But for Solomon to receive two prostitutes before his throne was certainly an act 
of being condescending, of not being condescending. Like Jesus, he welcomed publicans and sinners. So this is a crazy scene. Here you have two harlots given access to the king. The only thing crazier is that you and I have access not to an earthly king, but to the king of kings. Anytime we wish to enter into that throne room. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore draw with confidence near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of our need. Once heard, this story is never forgotten. The first woman describes a scene of sinful and pitiful squalor. In lurid detail, her testimony takes us inside a brothel somewhere in the red light district around Jerusalem. There were no clients that night, just two lonely hookers and their newborn sons. The two mothers and their respective babies are alone in the house. There were no clients of the prostitutes present at the time of the incident about to be described. Look at verse 19 with me. Then this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your servant was asleep. And she laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I got up in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I examined him closely in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, the living one is my son. So they spoke before the king. Then the king said, This one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Give me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. Two prostitutes have two babies. One woman accidentally smothers her child in the night and then switches the babies with the other woman. It was the old smothered baby switcheroo. Now, both women claim the living child as their own. And without other witnesses or evidence, Solomon must devise some way to solve this case. Will God's promised wisdom materialize or will Solomon wilt under this newly imposed pressure? So they come to Solomon to settle the dispute. There were no eyewitnesses to the crime and because the women were harlots, the baby's father certainly aren't going to surface. But in Solomon's amazing answer to them, we will see the fruit of the answer to his own prayer for in it, we're going to see unfathomable wisdom. The accuser alleges that her companion's baby died in the night because she had smothered it in her sleep. The woman got up, pilfered the living child from the accuser while she slept, placed the dead baby in the accuser's arms, and then insisted that the pirated infant was her own. Imagine my surprise in the morning, she says, when my baby wouldn't nurse. And then after rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, I look closer, and it's not my kid at all. 
At this point, the trial degenerates into a shouting match. The situation is escalating. Thus, they spoke before the king means they stopped speaking to the king and started shouting at each other in the presence of the king. It was a classic case of one person's word against the other. How could Solomon possibly solve this case? Ordinarily, the testimony of an additional witness would have been required to reach a verdict. According to the law of Moses, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime that's been committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. But in this particular case, there are no other witnesses. The two women were alone in the night, so now it's just one person's word against the other. What to do? The king says, bring me a sword. My friends, if you are involved in counseling, sharing with friends or neighbors, or giving advice to people in need, the first words out of your mouth should be the same as Solomon's. Bring me a sword. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. If you want to be effective in ministering to people, let those words be on your lips and let the word be in your hand. For it alone has the power to change us when it is rightly applied. I have very little use for human psychology which either often wants to medicate you into oblivion or blame all of your issues on seeing your mother naked in the shower when you were four years old. Whatever. Give me the word to navigate life. It has never failed me. Verse 25, please. And the king said, Cut the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. But the woman whose child was living, the living one, spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son, and she said, Pardon me, my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other one was saying, He shall neither be mine nor yours. Cut him. The king replied, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill, her, kill him. She is the mother. When all Israel heard about the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king because they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Normal judicial procedures, as I said, were of no value. Solomon's judicial justice there defied all norms when he said, cut the living child in two and give half to one and give half to the other. Since we are in essence in a courtroom, I guess we could call that a split decision. <laughs> to the women and others witnessing this scene, the king's words must have sounded like, you want justice? I'll give you justice. Both of you shall grieve equally. Now here the true mother steps up. She had bonded deeply with her baby, and she would do anything to save him. 
She would even give him up to her enemy if that would save her life or his life. Tear out her own heart if you must, but she would save her son. Thus she cried out for the king to spare his life. That mother made the same kind of sacrifice that some mothers make when they put their child up for adoption. They realize that they cannot care for the child very well themselves. And so they are willing to suffer the loss of a son or a daughter to give the child a better chance in life. Good fathers and mothers make similar sacrifices every day. Instead of doing what they want for themselves, they do what is best for their children. So she looked at the throne and she said, No, no, don't, don't ruin his life. Ruin mine. Don't tear him into, tear me into. So we can have hope and joy. I will lose and give away all my hope and joy. I wonder, do we realize there was a greater one than that who stood before the eternal throne and he looked at us and he saw the sword of judgment hanging over us. He saw that we should be punished for our sins and iniquities. And what did he say to the throne? What did he say to his father? He says, no, don't ruin them. Ruin me. Don't tear them into pieces tear me into pieces. I will give up all of my joy so they can have joy and hope eternally. And that's what he did. That's why the cross is, as Paul says, foolishness to the world but the wisdom of God. Because it is the ultimate place where someone won through losing. It's the ultimate place because he lost more than anyone else ever has. Have you understood that he has done that for you? Has that begun to melt your heart? He is the only king you can't lose. He's the only king who can forgive you. And if you will have him as your true king, you will be wise. You will be utterly wise. Well, back to the courtroom. After the mother's impassioned speech, the second woman callously says, Don't let him be mine or yours. Let's just divide him. Okay, that's, that's probably not the mother, right? In the bitterness of her grief, she could only look at the other mother with hateful envy. If she could not have her own son, well then, no one else will have a son either. Now here's the thing. One woman shows that her motherhood is actually more important than the child. That woman's motherhood is really idolatry. One woman shows that she is so unhappy with the idea that her rival would be a mother, she's quite happy to see that child killed. She doesn't care about that child. But the astounding thing about the first woman was that she gave away her motherhood so her child could have joy. She gave away all of her joy and hope so her child could have it. And ironically, what did she get back? As she gave it away, she not only got her motherhood back, but she got it back safe and purified. 
We're not told. But I bet she became a great mother after this. Now, if that second woman had gotten the baby, it would have been an absolute tyranny in her life and in the life of the child. You see, the second woman was the way of the world. The world thinks the Christian's way is utterly stupid. The world says, wait a minute, the way up is up. But no, the way up is down. And the way down is up. The way to lose your life is to find it. The way to find your life is to lose it. This occurs over and over again in Scripture. And in the end, justice will be done. Sometimes we see justice done in this life, and sometimes we don't. But make no mistake about it. Justice will be done in the end. The wisdom of God in Jesus is to do justice, and one day he will make everything right. The Bible describes the day of judgment as a day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. At the final judgment... What happened to that second woman will happen to all of the enemies of God. Their sins will be discovered to their amazement and everlasting dismay. People sometimes wonder if justice is going to be done. And in our anger, sometimes we even blame God for what is wrong in the world. Especially at all the terrible evils that seem to go unpunished. The genocides and the infanticides of a fallen race. But people are the ones to blame and never God, who is never on the side of injustice. He will make this completely clear on the last of all days when every wrong is going to be righted. Every terrible evil will be punished and every unrighteous sinner will be brought to judgment. Jesus is the king and he is going to see that justice is done. This will all be to the praise of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. So if people held Solomon in high view for reaching the right verdict in one hard case, imagine how much honor Jesus is going to receive for righting every wrong in the history of of the entire world. At the final judgment, when we see that justice of God in Christ, we are going to stand in awe of our great King. The book of Revelation says that when God execute, executes His final and terrible judgment, His people are going to cry, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. The prophet Isaiah once made a marvelous prophecy about the royal justice of God's king when he wrote, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. With all its talk of wisdom and equity and judging disputes, Isaiah's prophecy reminds us of, just the, of the just and merciful wisdom of King Solomon. But of course, ultimately, Isaiah's prophecy is about Christ, whom the Holy Spirit has given wisdom for justice. 
As much as people revered Solomon, we should give even greater reverence to Christ, who is really the wisdom of God. So stand in awe, therefore, at the justice he will display at that final judgment when every wrong is going to be righted. We should tremble at his judgments. God is going to judge every sin exactly as it deserves. But we should also stand in awe of God's mercy for the poor and sinner, sinners like you and I. And because he did everything possible to save us. As you can imagine, word of what the king had done spread like wildfire. People were dazzled by the wise and yet simple way he had solved this dilemma. The story was repeated over and over throughout the city and throughout the surrounding countryside. And because of that, the king was revered. So as we finish up today, the way for us to follow Solomon's wise counsel is to study the scripture, which are able to make us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. For as wise as Solomon was, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is infinitely wiser. That explains why in the Gospel of Matthew, when it speaks of the world-famous wisdom of Solomon, it goes on to say that someone greater than Solomon is now here. That someone greater is Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God and the wisdom of God. The Bible says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. His wisdom is more extensive and complete than Solomon's wisdom because, as we know, the divine Son of God knows all things. His wisdom is more perfect and permanent than Solomon's wisdom because, as the sinless Savior, he never gave in to sin's foolish temptations which are going to be Solomon's downfall, as we will discover. The wisdom of Jesus is more vital and necessary than Solomon's wisdom because as the everlasting king, Jesus continues to govern everything on earth and in heaven. And the wisest thing that anyone will ever do is to follow him. Let us pray. Lord, we are astounded that even a man like Solomon could have that kind of wisdom. But when compared to you, he is just like a little child. And Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you are the wisdom of God. And that even as Solomon was there judging between those two women, that our sins will never have to be judged because they were judged on the cross when you took our place. I pray, Lord, that if that truth has not made it into every heart in this room and everyone who will listen to this on the Internet, I pray that you would just drive that in so deep that we would they would discover, O oh Lord, that you are the only way to God. I ask these things in your name. Amen.